0: Good morning, everyone. Well, I want to show a couple of pictures as I begin this message. Um, I don't know if you've ever had um, soft serve ice cream and french fries at the same time. <laughs> I know soft serve ice cream is a, is a, uh, a really nice dessert and... Uh, and, and fries on their own are good, but when you put them together, it's uh, kind of a little awkward. But I've tried it once, and it's okay. It's not bad. You see, sometimes there's two opposing or seemingly opposing uh, in nature different things, and when you put them together, it kind of makes sense. How about the next one? I know my grandmother used to give me this, and and I I was amazed at it. And I thought, okay, there's no way cheese can be put on top of apple pie. But how many of you like cheese on top of apple pie? I already see Dave over here. Anyone else? You have to try it when you get home. All right? Cheese on apple pie. But sometimes something so opposite can kind of become, uh, you know, when you put it together, it becomes so delicious and so good. It's so good. There are actually a lot of opposing things in the Bible, but when you put them together, they actually become very good. It makes sense. There's some paradoxes in the Bible, and here are some of those paradoxes. We are strong when we are weak. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks of this as Paul says that when we are weak, when we admit our weakness before God, that is when we become strong. That is when we recognize that it is only God and God alone that can give us strength. What about this? We find rest under a yoke, under a yoke. Matthew 11 verse 28 speaks of how come all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus invites us to take his yoke. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the things that we learn from Jesus is the things of grace and mercy. And that's why we can find rest. How about this? We are made great by becoming servants. Matthew chapter 20, the disciples basically ask Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? And then Jesus says, those who will become servants, whoever wants to be great must be servant. Whoever wants to be first must be last. What a dichotomy. Yet there's such a great paradox in scripture. How about this one? We are exalted when we are humble. Philippians 2 speaks of this too. Jesus Christ coming down to this earth and being made in form of, of, of man and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, he humbled himself so that, as the scriptures say, the God the Father exalted him. Because the, 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 the picture of God's humility through his son is deserved of exaltation. That is a paradox in and of itself. What about we become wise by be, being fools for Christ's sake? 1 Corinthians 1 speaks of how the wisdom of the world is foolishness according to God, and the, and the wisdom of God is really foolishness according to the world. What then, how then should you live? You live according to the wisdom of God so that the foolishness of the world will, will be revealed. We live by dying. We live by dying. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and therefore I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. You live by dying to yourself, recognizing that your sins are paid at the cross. What about this one? And it's not on the screen. Good Friday. How can you say that it is good. A Roman crucifixion of an innocent Jewish man beaten and a crown of thorns clasping his head while he goes half a kilometer through the the, the streets, winding through the streets of the Via Dolorosa, all the way to the place of the skull called Golgotha, where he was nailed to a cross beside two criminals where they had told him to crucify him. The crowds were shouting, how can the suffering of an innocent man, how can this be Good. There's a lot of paradoxes in the Bible, but one of the greatest paradoxes that we can uh, find in in the Bible is really his justice and mercy. How can God punish his own son fully for our sin and yet at the same time display a mercy for us to forgive us and bring us back to himself? That's a dichotomy. But let me tell you, that's what the world is searching for right now. Because a definition of justice and a definition of mercy is all dependent on our selfish selves. And it's waiting. It's waiting for... The world is waiting for a definition of justice and mercy that goes beyond us as human beings. And it's found in the cross of Christ. Who deserves mercy? Who deserves justice? Justice is good. Wait, wait, wait. Justice is not so good. Well, justice is good only when it doesn't have to do with my mistakes or wrongdoing. Justice is good only uh, when it is served to those who deserve punishment for their wrongdoing but justice is bad when I've done wrong and I still feel like I deserve mercy. Justice is good when someone has wronged me and they get punished for it. Justice is not so good when I feel I don't deserve the punishment I get for the things I do wrong. How can we have such differing views of justice? We live in a world right now where it's impossible to know what is right and wrong. About mercy people feel mercy is is good when when I am the one that needs it of course but people feel that mercy is not so good when mercy is given to others who don't deserve it mercy is good when when um, when given to those who deserve it who have turned their lives around like a man who changes his life around and gets a minimum sentence instead of a maximum sentence But mercy is considered not so good when those who are lost, pitiful, evil, and wretched and perverted walk away without being punished for what they deserve. The definition of mercy and justice needs to be acclimatized to the purpose of the cross. Is where justice and mercy of God meet together at the cross for the purpose of bringing the good news of the gospel. The foundation is that God loved us so much that he would give his only son to be punished on on the cross on our behalf so that to anyone who looks upon him and believes on him will never perish but have everlasting life. God's mercy and justice was complete at the cross. God's mercy and justice was essential and is essential. There is no greater good than what God could do through his mercy by saving us from our sins. And there is no greater justice and righteousness than God punishing his own son for our sins. God was righteous to punish the one who bore our unrighteousness on himself in order that we could be made right in his eyes. He who deserved no punishment and had no sin was punished for our sin so that we can have a relationship with the living God. And this morning there's going to be a little bit of a different message. There's not going to be uh, three points in the sermon. There's going to be several, but we're going to go through the Old Testament first. Because we need to decide what the justice of God really is. The justice of God in the Old Testament. Some people think that justice of God is punitive. It's only punitive. Which means it's punishment, punishment, punishment. But let me tell you, from the very beginning, it was not punishment. God created the world in six days. And after each day, he saw that it was good. The word good is, is, is a measure uh, of only what God can measure because he was there at the beginning. No one else was in philosophy. We call this epistemology, the nature of knowledge. And the only way we know anything is because God knows it before. The only way we know and understand two plus two equals four is not because of our math teachers in, in grade one, grade two It's because God created a universe and he knows all things and all science and all diseases. He knows and understands everything before the foundation of the world. And that's why he calls it good. He calls it good, and that is good for us because he knows what is good. We can trust him. We can trust him. And then on the sixth day, after he created Adam and Eve, he said it it was very good. God did not say, oh, you know, I think i got to do this again. Um, It wasn't too, you know, I think I could improve. No! God made it, and it was good. For the first time he made it it was good. That's the justice and judgment of God. We always think of judgment as if it was just punitive, but it's not. It begins with the goodness of God. The problem is when evil when evil comes into the world. Right? When sin comes into the world, Genesis chapter 3 verse 13, what happens? God asks uh, Eve a question. God asks Eve a question. What is this that you have done? How have you sinned against me? You took of the the fruit, the forbidden fruit. And that's where Adam and Eve and serpent were cursed. There was a result. And then after the curse resulted in that they were banned from the garden, of this garden of perfect goodness, they were banned from it. And then they later on perished. They died. They died, Adam and Eve. There is judgment. You see, God not only establishes what is good, but then He has an establishment for what is good, and then He righteously judges that which is evil. Can we trust in the goodness of God in His judgment instead of worry and fear what He might do to us? God is perfect. Let's admit it. He's perfect. He's holy. He is righteous. And we are sinners. We have sinned against the Holy God. We have done wrong. We have fallen short of His glory. And that's why there was the flood, because if you look at Genesis 6, chapter 6 and 8 to 8, it speaks of how the entire world, the entire world was corrupt and filled with violence. And there was only one, there was only one family that was saved, and that was Noah's family, right? The reason why Noah's family was saved was because God had seen their righteousness. He had seen Noah's righteousness. He had seen the fact that Noah believed and trusted and walked with God. And that's why they were saved. But he could have wiped out the entire earth. He could have said, you know what? I'm just going to wipe everyone out and we would not exist. But thanks be to God for his mercy and his grace. At a moment where everyone deserves to die, he saved Noah and his family. Then there's Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18. There's sexual deviation. Men began to sleep with men. Women began to sleep with women. That was not part of God's design. And there was sin in that city. And God had punished that city. And it was, it was clear that God has a holy, righteous punishment and that those people who had those, that, that, that sinned in those ways, deserved that punishment. And then it goes on to the, the, life of, uh, the life of Israel. The Egyptians, God gave them time after time an opportunity to turn. But God allowed for Pharaoh to harden his own heart over and over and over again after the ten plagues and completely disobeyed God and did not want to let God's people go. So God abolished them. There was punishment and justice. And then the Israelites followed suit. Afterwards, they went into the wilderness, and then they, what should have taken five to six weeks took them 40 years to get to the land of Canaan. Even when they were at Kadesh Barnea, even at the entrance place to Canaan, they, in, in Numbers chapter 13, it speaks of this, whereby the people, the, the spies go in, and after 40 days, they come back out and they say, we're like grasshoppers compared to these guys. uh-uh, uh-uh we ain't going in there but this is a place filled with flowing with milk and honey. Why are you not going? Why are you not trusting God? So God tells Moses and Aaron, you got to tell these people, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to punish my people. I'm going to tell them that every single day that they were in the promised land, doubting my goodness and promises. I'm going to provide one year of wandering in this wilderness. And that's why it's 40 years in the wilderness. The wandering was a way in which God punished his people. Then, after the wandering came many kings and then a few kings, and then King Solomon came along, and he married foreign wives. He loved and served other gods. He was unashamedly a people pleaser. He led the people to uh, to basically be disunited. Scholars say that uh, scholars say that um, Solomon uh, basically didn't care about the kingdom whereby, um, you know, there was a split between the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south, and that's why we have the northern uh, tribe which is called Israel and the southern tribe called Judah. And then there were kings, uh, there was a lineage of disobedience after that with Jeroboam and Rehoboam and other kings who had seemingly followed God, but they were actually sinning against God. And this led to an even further divide in the kingdom, whereby Assyria came over and took over uh, the northern kingdom and led them into exile in 722 BC. And then after that, 150 years later, in 586 BC, the the, the nation of Babylon took over Jerusalem and knocked its wall falls down and took over the temple, like basically abolished the city. When you think about what How God works. He is filled with justice. People deserve to be punished for what they have done wrong. And in the Old Testament, the greatest sin that was among the people was their unbelief. They did not believe the promises of God. They did not believe the Ten Commandments, which was not for them in terms of not for them to just. Uh, uh, tiptoe around. It was for their good. It was supposed to be a a, a gift of grace to them. But they thought it was just a measure of of God's restriction and rules. So they grumbled. God's justice is perfect and holy. And so we come to a point where there's a call to repentance and mercy through the prophets. And and the prophets spoke uh, of God's of God's justice, but they also spoke about returning to God in Hosea chapter six, verse one to three. There's a call for repentance. It says here, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he may bind us up after two days. He will revive us on the third day. He will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Brothers and sisters, look at this. It says here, let us return to the Lord. Um, Hosea was a prophet that prophesied during the Assyrian exile. And he says, here, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us. He's judged us. He has caused problems in our land, but he will heal us. He has struck us down, but he will bind us up. You see, the justice of God is good because there is purpose to his punishment. To bring us back to himself to carry us back to himself. The Old Testament expresses judgment not only as an end in and of itself, but as a means to an end. God always has in mind the deliverance of his people. Isn't that good news? That in the punishment and the judgment of God, it was meant for people to open their eyes so that they can return to God. Not only was there a call for repentance, and yes, they did not obey, and they continue to be in exile. There is also a call for mercy in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter three verse two, which says this: "O Lord, you have heard the re- I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it; in the midst of the years, make it known in wrath." Remember mercy. It's interesting. Out of all the people in the Old Testament, Habakkuk got it right. Out of all the prophets, I believe Habakkuk uh, was the one who made this statement in such a way so as to preview the cross. You know, previously in in Habakkuk chapter 1, he was complaining. He was complaining literally to the Lord and saying to the Lord, why would you allow for a evil nation such as the Chaldeans and the uh, slash Babylonians, that's what they were called, to invade and to take over Jerusalem and Judah? Why would you allow for something evil to punish us? Why not choose a good nation? And then now in chapter 3, he realizes and he takes a step back and he says, I've heard of your fame. I've heard of what you've done. I've heard of your good work. And now this is what I've accepted in wrath. Remember mercy. Notice he doesn't say, take away wrath, give me mercy. Take away wrath, give us mercy. No, he says, in the wrath that you so holy and justly are are putting upon your people. Remember mercy upon us. Have mercy in the midst of wrath, your good, holy judgment. And this is a picture of the cross because at the cross is where the judgment of God sat and the mercy of God flowed. It was at the cross that God sent, God sent his only son to die for our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay the debt of our sin so that we don't have to carry it on our own, that we don't have to bear the punishment of that sin, that we can put it on Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin. But not only that did he pay the penalty for your sin, guess what? He has to to follow through, doesn't he? Because our God is a great God. It's not just his justice, but his mercy, which for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We do not deserve eternal life, but it is given to us voluntarily, to those who believe and trust in what he has done for us. It's the mercy of God and the justice of God that comes together. That's why Habakkuk says, in wrath, remember mercy. I don't think he knew what was going to happen, but it was a preview to the cross. Because this world says you can either have justice or you can have mercy. You either deserve justice or you deserve mercy. You can't have both. You can't have both, but at the cross, we have both because God is so holy that he is able to accomplish his justice, his wrath against sin and accomplish that great work of salvation to anyone who would believe that merciful salvation that we have. In the New Testament, we, 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 we look at a need for mercy. And it's, and it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of studying this. I, I came across this many times, as many of you probably have read the book of Matthew through our reading plan. Have mercy on us, Son of God. This was said by uh, two blind men. And, 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 and Scripture tells us in Isaiah that when the Messiah comes, the blind will see. The blind will be healed. And this is true. This is literally literally what Jesus did was he healed those two blind men. But it's the condition of the heart that I want you to pay attention to. It's the condition of their heart. The reason why this is not preached a lot is because it's just one sentence. Have mercy on me, son of David. Okay. But what this really means is that there is a need, there is a genuine need on, for, for them in their hearts as they come to Jesus. They have a need for him to rescue them. They're saying, have compassion on me, Jesus. When the world doesn't have compassion, no people pass me by, have compassion on me. Oh, that means so much more when you think about what Jesus did on the cross. But at that moment, Jesus tells, asks them, do you believe? And they said, yes, I believe. And then Jesus heals. them. Have compassion. This is a call of a true believer, and that's why it's so important for us to know this in our hearts when we come to Christ. Have mercy on me. Have compassion upon me. I need you, O Lord. I need you. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, if you think you deserve mercy, you aren't getting mercy right. Because no one deserves mercy. God didn't have to send his own son It was his choice. And yes, we can look through scripture and we can look through the theology of God's mercy and say, yes, I deserve God's mercy because that's who he is. No. No. We do not deserve God's mercy. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve the cross. We don't. Every single one of us. But yet, in His great mercy, He gives us what we don't deserve when we need it the most. Have mercy on us, Son of David. And the word "Son of David" was uh, depicting what they knew of Second Samuel chapter seven, which was the Davidic covenant whereby one day Jesus, one day the Messiah would come and that he would establish and rule and reign over Israel. And that's what they were looking forward to. But as, 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 as people who know the risen Christ, who know that the scriptures have talked about the risen Christ, we can look back and give thanks and say, Son of David! We believe that what Jesus has done on the cross was done completely and finally because of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Oh, brothers and sisters, we don't deserve mercy, but God has so graciously poured it upon us. And I'm going to end with this final point here. Good to more good. Might not make so much sense, but I'm going to walk through this with you here. The book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 12, it speaks of the new Jerusalem. And there's a vision of a myriad of angels. And then he comes to this last part and he says here, the, the author says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's two major uh, meanings uh, of this text. I'm going to walk this through with you here. First and foremost, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant was the covenant of Moses, right? Moses made a bilateral covenant with God and the people of God had to respond. Exodus chapter 24 verse 4 to 8 speaks of this. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord God has made with you in accordance with these words. Slay a goat, took its blood, threw it upon the people and said, I've read you now the law and this is a bilateral covenant. It requires that you obey God and, and, and God will bless you and keep you. But if you disobey God, he will punish you. That is the reality of the Old Covenant. And it was called the sprinkling of that blood. That's why in this text, it talks about the New Covenant, but it talks about Old Testament imagery of the sprinkling. It's a new type of sprinkling. And Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14, speaks of how Aaron, the high priest, he actually went into uh, the Day of Atonement, was able to dip his finger in blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The sprinkling of blood represented cleansing, represented a covenant cleansing. And here in this text, it specifically says that Jesus is the new mediator. He is the mediator of a new covenant between us and God. And and to the sprinkled blood, that sprinkled blood speaks. Now, this is personification. There's no such thing as blood speaking. But in the Bible, it uses personif- personification is used specifically so that we can understand the, the enormity of what's happening. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you turn with me, it's not on the screen. Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. Genesis 4, verse 4 says this. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Wow. Abel was a good man. He was a good man. He offered the firstborn of his flock. He offered his best. And he offered a blood sacrifice. And it was pleasing to God. It was pleasing to God. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 states this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says this By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, the which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Why? Why does Abel still speak? It's because it's the fact that he offered what God wanted to offer, wanted him to offer. He offered a good sacrifice. So therefore it is good By definition, the sacrifice was good. But there is no such thing as the sacrifice of animals that will will take away the sin of the world. There's no such thing that we can sacrifice an animal and receive forgiveness through that animal because the blood of animals cannot forgive sin. The Old Testament has all these sacrifices specifically for the Israelites so that they could point people to the cross it wasn't the death of goats and rams and bulls and calves it was the death of jesus christ that provided for us a mediation between us and god a new covenant a new sprinkled blood a covenant that is unilateral and is completely god's work in our life through the cross that is why it is so good it is very good it is more good Than the blood of Abel. But there's a second interpretation as well. There's a second meaning towards this. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Cain killed Abel. The murder of Abel cried out. The blood of Abel cried out justice, vengeance. And that was right, and it was good. Because God is just and He is holy. But then we have another murder the murder of Jesus Christ, with which His blood cries out mercy, forgiveness. You don't have to work for your salvation, it's a free gift. Mercy is what we need. Jesus provides us that mercy. That's why it says here, that's why it tells us that the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is why we call Good Friday, Good It's because God has provided everything that we need in Christ Jesus. The punishment of God is good. For the punishment of sin is needed and necessary to to satisfy a holy God. And then the pouring out of his forgiveness and his mercy to people who don't deserve it to reconcile them to himself in eternity. That is very good. That is even better. That is why the justice and the mercy of God comes together at the cross. At the cross, we have forgiveness. And here's some application, a couple of application as we walk away. Repent and believe. For those of you who who may have listened to this message and are listening right now and and have uh, in your heart responding by faith, and you know you need to repent and turn to Jesus. You know you need forgiveness. You know you need mercy. You know you need God to forgive you, and you know you need to know that God forgives you. And deep in your heart, sometimes there's this fear that you don't know that he's forgiven you. I call to you right now, repent. Repent doesn't mean get your life together. Repent doesn't mean I'm going to do everything right and then I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be good in God's sight. Repent just means turn. Turn from your selfishness. Turn from your ways. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idolatry. Turn from your self-pity. Turn from your entitlement. Turn from all the things that you consume as your own and turn from that sin And turn to God through Jesus Christ. Believe in his name. The Bible tells us that if we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. You will be saved. Anyone listening this morning, I beg of you, repent. Turn. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another day during this pandemic. Think that you have so many more days ahead. God can save you right now. He can give you new life. He can grant you eternal life. Something you don't deserve, but he freely gives because he loves you. He loves you. And then, secondly, confess and forgive. I don't know about you, but uh, this pandemic, the past year, year and a half—I don't even know if it's been a year, a bit a year and a bit—has been really, really tough. It's been tough on a lot of people. There's been a lot of suffering, a lot of hardships. A lot of difficulties, a lot of anger, a lot of unresolved issues in the home, a lot of infighting, a lot of racism, a lot of injustice. But the Church of Jesus Christ, we are called to live out the gospel. We are called. To not only observe the cross. We are called to live out the forgiveness of the cross. We are called to the transparency. As the same transparency as Jesus Christ had hanging on that tree. So that we can confess our sin to one another. The world says hide. The world says don't confess. Because because we don't know whether or not that person is going to forgive. But we have a savior we have a Savior who loved us so much that if anyone would believe in him, he would welcome him, welcome them into his arms. We have an opportunity to confess and forgive. Confess our sins to one another. The Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 16, as well as 1 John chapter 1, verse 9-10, to 10, the two instances in the New Testament where it talks about confession. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. So that you may have a restored relationship with one another and before God. We need to have a, we need as a church, and for anyone listening, and if you're a believer today, we need to have a, um, a routine, a good spiritual routine of, of confession. Just like you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you, 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 you take a shower every day. Whatever you do every single day is because of routine. It's for your own good. What is for your own good? Confess your sins to one another. If you have something against your family member right now or uh, against uh, someone else or maybe on, uh, on social media where uh, th- there's just so much miscommunication and misunderstanding, if, if you in your heart has, have, have before God have said something wrong, done something wrong, confess it first and foremost to God and then confess it to your brother and sister. Don't wait another day. And Forgive. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as Christ forgave you. Brothers and sisters, we cannot forget the power of the justice and mercy of God personally in our lives as we can confess and forgive one another. I'm not going to stand here and say as a church we're better. No, we're not. In fact, sometimes we're worse. We sin against one another. That's a reality. But the question is, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to let that fester? Are you going to let bitterness, resentment? Are you going to let that harbor in your heart? Are you going to deal with it swiftly? Are you going to say, Lord God, I need to, to confess this sin. Lord God, I need to ask for forgiveness. Are you going to say, Lord God, I need to forgive my brother and sister in Christ. And I truly want to because of what you've done. confess and forgive one another. I think this is the, the best thing I can say to you regarding application. We can walk out these doors and we all know it's been a very challenging year. We've sinned against each other. We've sinned against people around us. Let's get right with God. Know that at the cross he's he's accomplished everything on our behalf that we can walk out these doors knowing that we are children of the Lord, forgiven and set free so that we can live in right relationship with one another. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word which teaches us of your justice and mercy, which shows us the answer and the solid foundation of the gospel. How undeserving we are of your love and mercy, and that you, but you poured it out upon us through the shedding of the blood of Jesus on the cross. Oh, how you love us, and how you continue to love us. Lord, may we share this with the world that doesn't understand love at this time. May we share the love of Jesus Christ. You are our hope, O Lord. You are our hope. You love us. You've forgiven us. And we desire to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.